Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Great. Good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, we'll be hearing from Mr. Glenn Gerstel. Mr. Gerstel served as the general counsel of the National Security Agency and Central Security Services from 2015 to 2020. He has written and spoken widely about the intersections of technology and national security and privacy. Prior to joining the NSA, Mr. Gerstel practiced law for almost 40 years at the international law firm of Millbank LLP, where he focused on the global telecommunications industry and served as the managing partner of the firm's Washington DC, Singapore and Hong Kong offices. Mr. Gerstel served on the president's National Infrastructure Advisory Council, which reports to the president and the Secretary of Homeland Security on security threats to the nation's infrastructure, as well as on the District of Columbia Homeland Security Commission. He is the recipient of the National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal, the Secretary of Defense Medal for Exceptional Civilian Service, and the NSA Distinguished Civilian Service Medal. Uh, just to give our attendees an outline of how this lecture will go, uh, Mr. Gersell will spend about 15 to 20 minutes giving his remarks. Uh, I will then ask a few questions of my own, and then we'll turn it over uh, for audience Q&A. So if you have questions for Mr. Gersell during his remarks, please feel free to comment in the Q&A um, portal at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And without further ado, I'll hand it over to Mr. Gersell. Welcome and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, uh, Hannah. And uh, let me express my gratitude to the Institute uh, of World Politics for giving me this opportunity. And thanks also to all of you uh, joining online. Just hours before this past Thanksgiving, Roomba vacuums suddenly stopped in homes around the country. Amazon's ring video doorbells wouldn't ring or show who was at the front door. Roku videos ceased streaming and you couldn't upload photos to Flickr or even read the Washington Post online. An outage at Amazon Web Services, which hosts almost half the servers on the internet, caused a portion of the web to be down for a good part of that Wednesday. Imagine the trouble it could have caused had it occurred 48 hours later on Black Friday. Or worse, imagine if the outage had been nationwide or had spread to the next largest web provider, Microsoft, with the two companies taking down almost two thirds of the web. It feels like 2020 has been the year of dodging bullets and there've been a lot of them. From the pandemic to a harsh political campaign and contested election, each awash in falsehoods to nonstop cyber breaches. Fortunately, with the horrible exception of the pandemic, we mostly avoided disaster. When you think about it, they all have one thing in common. Along with the Amazon web outage, they were created or spread by technology, and in particular, the digital revolution. We all sense this in general terms. We know that technology has given us massive and previously unimaginable benefits, but it equally creates vulnerabilities because the more useful the technology, the more we rely on it. And thus, the more our lives could be interfered with or damaged if that technology fails or is misused. Partly because of media attention and the political environment, when we think about this vulnerability in a big way, 
we often think of it as a threat posed by other nations. Indeed, the COVID pandemic-19 has revealed this to a remarkable degree and has accelerated vulnerabilities that might otherwise have evolved over several years or perhaps a decade. As global travel has become commonplace, a highly transmissible disease can no longer remain a local development. Now, factory shutdowns halfway around the world affect not only products on our supermarket shelves, but also global transportation and our stock market. In other words, what happens in China doesn't stay in China. Or to put it in a more serious way, our national well-being, our national security is for the first time challenged by and vulnerable to other countries in ways we will have difficulty managing. I'm pointing out how technology in the hands of other countries can affect us because that's how we customarily think of risk to national security, namely the challenges posed by other nations. We spend a great deal of time and money deterring or defending against those threats. But the point I want to make today is that we actually may face a graver and more likely threat to our national well-being, not from the technological advances of other nations, but instead from the unregulated technology in the hands of our private sector. We focus less on that for many reasons. We don't typically think of the private sector as responsible for national security. And even when there are problems with private sector technology, we tend to regard them as isolated incidents confined to one company, not signs of systemic risk to our country. Moreover, and more significantly, the enormity of the impending shift of responsibility to the private sector is difficult to embrace. It used to be clear that only government was responsible for our national security or, or the common defense as the constitution calls it. And our private sector was largely free to pursue its business goals and the lines between the two were pretty clearly delineated. But the digital revolution has shifted those lines in many ways. And for the first time in our nation's history, our national security increasingly rests not with the federal government, but instead with a private sector that conducts our digital lives. I wanna illustrate that in the areas of cybersecurity and disinformation. Both are complex problems arising from the digital revolution. Both arise It's produced by technology. And both require multi-part and in some cases difficult solutions. Taking cybersecurity first, we've seen how foreign-generated cyber attacks exploit a unique gap in responsibility. In the case of cyber theft or damage, it's possible for other countries to do significant harm to our private sector, and our government isn't necessarily going to respond. Time and again, we've seen Chinese government hackers steal patents from solar energy companies or details from millions of passports in the files of Marriott hotels, or the North Korean military wipe out Sony Pictures computers in retribution for a mediocre film they didn't like. And our government doesn't attack back, at least in any conventional sense. Sure, we impose sanctions and indict some foreigners when we can find out who did it. But we, and for that matter, every other nation with an open internet, hasn't found a good way to deter foreign cyber attacks. The main reason for this state of affairs is the difficulty of timely attribution to the deliberate actions of a foreign government. The very nature of the internet affords rich opportunities to shield a malign actor's identity. And even if we knew who did it, there's always a concern that even a proportional response by our government might trigger an escalation from the other country. So the result is that while an American company isn't expected to defend itself against North Korean missiles, 
it does seem like a sitting duck for foreign cyber malevolence. And we know what the target of almost all that cyber malevolence is, our private sector. It's the private sector that holds the keys to our economic well-being from the secrets of industrial innovation to the troves of data that enable our financial, commercial, and business lives. Spurred by the internet of things, cloud computing, and 5G connectivity, the digital revolution will generate incomprehensible amounts of data in the private sector that will be of critical value and sensitivity. And with artificial intelligence to make sense of it all, the private sector will be making marketing, financial, educational and health decisions that of course will shape our personal and work lives. On one hand, as with any risk to public safety and economic well-being, these vulnerabilities will lead to more regulation. But on the other, we Americans have a deep-seated unease with heavy regulation of the private sector. Most of the regulation addressing the vulnerabilities and risks of the private sector digital technology will be aimed at the useful manifestations of technology. We worry about not being able to get online or an app cra crashing like, like the Amazon web services outage. So we might regulate it and perhaps require minimum safety standards or redundancy. Or we worry about all that data that the private sector has amassed about our cyber lives and wonder how it might be misused or worse, get hacked. But there's an aspect of the digital revolution that we should be worrying about more because it's far more pernicious. And that's the problem of online disinformation, which threatens our very democracy. We have to look no further than this week's news. As the nonpartisan Alliance for Securing Democracy just reported, Russia and Iran are using social media and their state-controlled online news sites to blast us with facts about how the presidential election was rigged, voting machines were tinkered with, and an unprecedented conspiracy is denying President Trump the second term to which he was elected. Of course, they're amplifying domestically produced disinformation, but it can be insidious and powerful and deepen and harden our existing divisions. Foreign and domestic sites spewing disinformation have collectively many millions of online viewers. It, it can't be healthy for a democracy when almost half the population isn't sure if our president was duly elected. And more shockingly, that only four in 10 Americans think that the recent election was fair and accurate. In short, in the case of elections and political speech, disinformation has a corrosive effect on democracy, leading to mistrust of institutions, cynicism about our leaders, skepticism about our ability to solve social problems, and ultimately raising the specter of authoritarianism as a reaction to that corrosion. But it's, not, it's, it's affecting not merely our political institutions. The Gallup poll of just a few weeks ago revealed that due to erroneous fears about safety, almost half the country doesn't want to take a COVID vaccine. And many others refuse to follow the advice of doctors and scientists and wear face masks, choosing instead to believe false claims that masks are useless. So our public health is damaged by disinformation. When three out of every four Americans get some or all of their news from social media platforms, it's clear that the risk of deliberately incorrect online information is, is national in scope and could get worse. What if Russia or Iran had seized on a real disaster, say the massive wild, wildfires in the Pacific Northwest and weaponized the problem with false information online, amplifying and corroborating it on their controlled news sites and fed false information about the fire's path or wrong instructions about escape routes? 
in the future, a coordinated disinformation attack on multiple platforms seizing on an already contentious issue such as vaccine safety could have a level of seeming veracity that would lead to chaos and it could take weeks, if ever, for the truth to be broadly accepted. What if days before the next election, a deep fake video, virtually undetectable as a fraud, goes viral on YouTube, reporting to show a gubernatorial or, senator, or senatorial candidate having sexual relations with a minor? So if we know this is already such a big problem and we know it could be even worse, why haven't we done something about it? Well, as with any complex problem, there are many answers. First, like the other bad side effects of our cyber lives, there's no miracle drug to cure this disease. Second, we've historically taken a minimal and reactive approach to regulation of the private sector. And even if we were, even if we started to draw up laws to deal with it, disinformation has itself become a paralyzing political issue. Besides, we're uncomfortable with regulating any speech. So it's not really obvious what we can do about the problem anyway. And so we just throw up our hands. As long as disinformation is slowly corroding our institutions, or hindering our national political will in, in, or insidiously prolonging a pandemic, there's no one day that we must fix the problem. We could wait until a crisis or disaster, but we don't need to. There are steps we can take to start to fix the problem. No one solution is at hand, but we have tools at our disposal to use and they will bit by bit make a difference. I'll mention just three of them. Probably the most obvious tool is the law, but we first have to get over what seems like a big obstacle. We want neither government nor the private sector to be the final arbiter of the truth or what we hear and see. Yet allowing the private sector to profit from manipulating what we view online without regard to its truthfulness or the consequences of viral dissemination is simply not sensible public policy. But it's not all or nothing. There's room for some thoughtful regulation after all, the First Amendment applies to government and not to private businesses. So there's room for Congress to act. For example, we still do not have a law that subjects political campaign ads appearing online to the same disclosure and approval rules applicable to those on radio and TV, nor laws that effectively ban or require the disclosure of foreign influence in our elections. True, Congress can't simply outlaw false statements, which would probably be unconstitutional, but it could require more disclosure and make certain knowing or intentional falsehoods illegal, say deliberately spreading incorrect information about polling places, much in the way that the law prevents someone from filing a false police report. Admittedly, there's a delicate line between a prank or a spoof and something clearly malicious and potentially illegal. But the mere fact that the line may be difficult to draw need not preclude legislation that provides a framework for that process. One thing many Republicans and Democrats in Congress agree on is that fixing the disinformation problem on social media is going to require an amendment of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. They just don't agree on how to amend it. The statute was enacted in 1996 to allow the nascent internet to flourish without legal entanglements. It says in essence, that internet providers aren't liable for content posed by their users nor are they liable for their decision to delete that content or take down accounts. Well-intentioned at the time, before the existence of social media, the statute is now seen by the political right 
as permitting liberal social media companies to censor conservative views, and by the left as letting Facebook, Twitter, and others off the hook for not stopping online hatred and wrongdoing. In any case, it has come to insulate the business models of social media companies that are the source of information for billions of people around the globe. These ad-driven models rely on secret complex algorithms that micro-target users, facilitating the forwarding of material without regard to its accuracy, thus allowing falsehoods to go viral and often amplifying problematic material. Congress is now considering this contentious issue and we'll see whether enlightened compromise between liberals and conservatives and between regulators and Silicon Valley is possible, but it will clearly be part of the solution. Another obvious tool is the technology itself. The very technology that helps spawn the problem can be used to correct it too, with artificial intelligence helping social media platforms spot lies in the first place, identify doctored videos and photographs, and track the dissemination of falsehoods by both domestic and foreign users. <clears throat> and after social media was awash in disinformation during the pandemic and the last election, the platforms finally abandoned their hands-off approach and were more muscular in blocking objectionable content and taking down malicious accounts. Who would have thought that Facebook and Twitter might one day label statements from the President of the United States as false or misleading? But calling out disinformation and making it more difficult to forward tweets or repost messages are all necessary steps to curbing disinformation. True, there'll always be difficulty in deciding what's sufficiently objectionable or incorrect to warrant labeling or even removal. But again, just because it's tough to draw the line doesn't mean we shouldn't even start. One helpful step would be for greater transparency about how such decisions are made and how a platform's algorithms make recommendations and curate what we see and hear. Finally, there's a whole range of other steps that can be taken beyond the regulation of social media platforms. <clears throat> For example, we could promote international coordination to stop the export of disinformation or bring cross-border cyber criminals to justice. We could do a much better job of organizing our federal government in a coherent way to fight disinformation, perhaps by setting up a National Disinformation Center within our intelligence community, just the way we've successfully done with the National Counterterrorism Center. <clears throat> the last one I'll mention is one of the most profound things we can do with rich benefits, and that would be to teach digital literacy and put civic education back in our schools so that disinformation, whether foreign or domestic, will be less likely to take hold in an educated populace. Different opinions are inherent and indeed necessary in any democracy. And there's always fertile ground for discord. But when that discord is polluted by disinformation, whether maliciously homegrown or skillfully fomented by foreign adversaries, it's difficult for government alone to respond. It will not be easy and there's no one solution, but our society can work together to manage the vulnerabilities to our personal and business lives created by our ever-growing reliance on the private sector's digital technology. Our national well-being depends on nothing less. Thank you very much. Thank you for your remarks, Mr. Gristel. Um, like I mentioned, if you have questions, please feel free to comment in the Q&A, um, pour out the bottom of your screen. Uh, my first question 
for you is probably the one thing that's on everyone's minds these days is getting is the prospect of getting a vaccine for COVID. I mean, we see it on the news. We're hearing a lot about it recently. You mentioned that there was some disinformation around that. How serious of a problem might this be? Sadly, a significant one. Um, look, we've got all the ingredients here that would make a successful disinformation campaign. This, this question of getting a vaccine has become politicized. It's emotional. It's a complex topic. And there are a lot of unknowns about it, how the vaccine was developed, by whom, under what conditions, what safety protocols have been in place involved in its transport and testing and so on and so forth. So lots of unknowns. And when you have that, you have all the ingredients for a successful disinformation campaign. And unfortunately, uh, people are taking advantage of it. The head of the International Red Cross just a few days ago, or maybe a day or two ago, said that disinformation was the second global, the second pandemic. And um, unfortunately, he's right. Um, we just saw YouTube, for example, uh, suspend the One America News Network for its claims that there were guaranteed cures for COVID. And there's been a deep, for years, a deep anti-vaxxer um, uh, movement uh, on many, many Facebook sites with literally hundreds of thousands, actually millions of, view of viewers and, and people who've seen this, these videos and Facebook posts about anti-vaccination. Recently, I think just, just this morning, actually, Facebook announced it was finally taking even stronger steps. And instead of downplaying or, or lowering those recommendations for anti-vaxxer uh, website uh, postings, they're now actually going to eliminate those that are perceived to be uh, at variance with, with official public health standards. But when we have a situation in which we're going to need, according to the scientists, something like 60% of the population to, to get vaccinated, and this in some of those cases involve dual vaccination, vaccines, um, we're not going to get there if, uh, if, as current polls show, um, some 48, 50, 60% of the people, depending on which poll you're looking at and when, uh, distrust vaccines. Let me just close with one good point on this area, which is, yes, I think we're going to see a very significant amount of disinformation around, around the vaccines, unfortunately, because as I said, it's very fertile ground for it. There's a lot of receptivity to false information in this area. But the one good point is that unlike in other areas, I don't think we're going to get too much foreign in, in uh, sources of disinformation. Why is that? Because both Russia and China are adversaries in this they too have an interest in seeing vaccines be widely adopted. And I think from a global public opinion point of view, it's going to look very bad for China or others to be making efforts to stymie the full implementation of, of, uh, of vaccines. So one good, one lining in the silver cloud, one uh, silver lining in the cloud, so to speak, is that, is that maybe we won't have too much foreign interference in this regard. You mentioned uh, disinformation from foreign uh, sources, and you went into that a little bit more in uh, detail in your article, The National, Se National Security Case for Fixing Social Media, um, which was pub published in The New Yorker. Given your background at the National Security Agency, what can you tell us about the disinformation efforts aimed at us from overseas? Oh, they're extensive. Uh, they are principally the product of four countries, and I'll just uh, maybe talk, spend a minute about talking about each one because they're different. They're, they're not the same in terms of how they approach this and what their goals are. Uh, we'll start with Russia. Russia is probably the one that's the most focused on disinformation in the, in the United States. Their goal is very simple. They just want to sow discord. They just want to throw a monkey wrench into the process. 
Um, there are some very sophisticated entities within Russia that are at work uh, full-time on disinformation in the United States. There's branches of their intelligence operations that known by their initials, the SVR, the GRU, which is their military intelligence, the FSB. And then they also use uh, proxies like the Internet Research Agency, um, which is a affiliated a private sector entity and yet affiliated and, and, and believed to be loosely directed, if not more, more, more seriously directed by, by the Kremlin. Um, and they all have, as I said, one goal, which is, which is to sow discord. And they do so with impunity. They're not particularly concerned about more sanctions being imposed on them. Their trade with the United States is already, or, already at a low. They're not particularly concerned about world opinion, thinking, uh, thinking poorly of them. So they, they have a pretty free hand in this area. By contrast, China, um, is a little more restrained. Uh, their interests are not necessarily directly at just sowing discord in the United States. That probably would be a nice thing for them. But they're really more interested in showing comparisons between a peace-loving China that has an excellent form of government, and this is what they wish to broadcast, and is a peaceful neighbor in Asia, um, with the problems of the West and the corrupt and decadent and problems uh, with, uh, with Western-style government. So they're very quick in an integrated way to um, show how China has been able to deal with the pandemic in a very effective way and how they've even sent medical equipment to Italy and elsewhere in Europe, uh, while the United States has, uh, has obviously been having its problems. Um, but China long-term is a more serious uh, problem in the disinformation area, mainly because of their immense resources. And if they really tried to apply all the resources of the Ministry of State Security and the private sector and harness them all together in a very coherent way, um, they could pose a very, very grave danger to us. At the moment, however, because some 17% of their trade is with the United States, they don't want to jeopardize that. They are worried about world opinion. So there's a difference between the positions between Russia and China. Very quickly, the other two are Iran, where the Revolutionary Guard Corps has an active cyber uh, unit that sows, seeks to sow disinformation, to steal information. Um, we've seen them active in the last few weeks. And then finally, with particular note for the, for the vaccine is North Korea, which is interested not, not so much in sowing discord, but, but in obtaining money. They want to use cyber and disinformation in their cyber uh, efforts to use ransomware, to try to steal Bitcoins. And we've seen them most recently, although it isn't disinformation, we've seen them most recently trying to probe pharmaceutical manufacturers to learn their secrets of vaccine information. So all four of these countries are very serious threats. Just a follow-up question to that. Um, how does Russia and other nation states avoid detection by social media platforms? because they are very sophisticated at this. Um, let's, let's start with Russia and some fascinating details about what they did to us in 2016. Um, this is all uh, available um, in a five volume bipartisan Senate committee report that details the extent of the Russian interference and influence uh, in, the, uh, in the 2016 election. Uh, there's a lots of information about this online. There are uh, cybersecurity researchers such as uh, Graphica. There's a, uh, something I mentioned, the Alliance for Securing Democracy. They have something called the Hamilton 2.0 dashboard on the web that tracks uh, the information, disinformation from the Russians. The think tank that I'm affiliated with, uh, CSIS, has produced a number of reports and lots of online information. So there's lots of information about what Russia does and what do they do. The difference is they act in a coherent, integrated way. 
they spend months or sometimes years building up fake uh, Facebook accounts, sometimes with pictures of real people, sometimes with pictures generated by artificial intelligence, pictures of people that never existed. They build up followers, they like things, dislike things, they make it look like a real account. And then when they post something, not only is it disseminated on Facebook, but then they tweet about it. Then they have Russian controlled online news sites talk about this. And then they have other sites talk about the fact that there are articles about this. So it just builds a level of authenticity and credibility about it in a very integrated way. They're, they're masters at taking an integrated concept to this. And Facebook, to their credit, has made huge strides in trying now after 2016, belatedly, uh, in trying to take down these fake accounts, watch them, monitor them, not let them get uh, thousands of followers. And using artificial intelligence, they're able to see that a, a posting on Twitter is cross-posted to Facebook and is a false one, and so they can take that down, et cetera. And they're starting to do a, a better job of this. Um, but it's a bit of a cat and mouse game with, uh, with Russia trying to, of course, uh, and as well as, as the other three countries I mentioned and, and cyber criminals generally trying to stay one step ahead of the, of the detection uh, methods. Um, one thing I'll just note and close on this point is it's, it's one thing to take down a, a blatantly false statement about um, oh, COVID-19 or election security, but it's another thing to take down what looks like a legitimate news site and that's it, it, still spewing disinformation. And so that, is, that, is, that remains a problem uh, because that's much harder for artificial intelligence to catch that. And indeed, um, as the Constitution is clear, Americans have the right to receive foreign disinformation. So it's not necessarily a, a, something that we can easily cure with, with uh, just the stroke of a, of a legal pen. Bringing uh, the topic to election security, is there any evidence that this flood of disinformation actually changed any minds or did it really affect the outcome of any election? Oh, that's a, a really fascinating question along with the others you've asked, but, but this one in particular is, um, is a little hard to answer. The others have easier answers and that's because we just don't know. Um, I think the short answer is it stands to reason that, that there's some effect, but we don't have a lot of scientific studies that show this. There have been a fair number of academic studies uh, on this. They're not totally conclusive. Let me just sum it up by saying um, the studies show that disinformation works when it falls on receptive ears or viewed by receptive eyes. So we have to be predisposed to this. Uh, for some reason, there's a little more willingness on the right, perhaps because there's a sense of aggrievement or lack of injury or a sense of injury. So maybe the people are more willing to believe in, in uh, conspiracy theories or some of these more lurid pieces of disinformation. But in any case, it's on both the left and right. And a couple of studies have shown that one, it falls on receptive ears. So you, you need to have a propensity for this. It needs to be about a topic that's contentious and about which not is, is known. And then elites have to drive it. There was just a recent study by the uh, Berkman Klein Center uh, uh, up at Harvard, I think it came out in October, that showed that the disinformation when it starts from the top, say by the president or, or opinion leaders, and then spreads down through the sort of ecosystem, uh, that it then picks up more traction as opposed to disinformation that just starts from some random post from nobody, so to speak. Uh, so elites drive it. Um, what's the effect that it has? Well, twofold. One, um, even if it doesn't 
start the divisions in our country. As I said, it, it, we have to start with some divisions for it, to, for it to play upon. Even if it doesn't start the divisions, it deepens them and hardens them. It makes it more difficult to find the truth to come together for compromise. And this is important. Uh, if you look back at the 2016 election, you know, one of the fascinating statistics is that a change of just 80,000 votes in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, if you would reassign those votes so that Hillary Clinton had won each of those three states, just 80,000 by one vote, that would have changed the election. President Trump would not have been elected. Why do I mention this? Because it stands to reason, we have no way of knowing for sure, that, that the Russian influence campaign in 2016 could well have had an effect on 80,000 people. Those 80,000 people, who knows? So I'm not saying it would have changed the election. I'm not saying it did change the outcome, but it's an entirely poss possible outcome we can't rule out. And even if it isn't that election, it could be an election in the future. At the end of uh, your remarks, you mentioned um, the idea of focusing on civic, civic education. How much are we doing that now? And do you think it'll make a difference? Well, due in part to a good thing, which is a focus on STEM education, more science, more math, et cetera, that has had the effect of crowding out old-fashioned civics education. In fact, we're now down to a point where only nine states and the District of Columbia uh, actually require a full year of, of, uh, of, of civics education or U.S. government education. And um, I think 10 states don't have any requirements whatsoever. 31 states only require a half year of it. So we're at a point as a result of lack of civic education where according to some recent studies, Pew, Pew surveys, um, one in four Americans can't even name the three branches of government. And half of college graduates don't know how long representatives and senators serve in Congress. They don't even know their terms. So as I mentioned, disinformation works uh, where there are sort of predisposed minds or where there's some, some ignorance of the facts. And you're not gonna be open to conspiracy theories if you know elections, if, if you know uh, explanations for how elections are handled or you understand how vaccines are, are carefully vetted by the FDA, et cetera. Um, so if you have information about how our government works, about civic responsibility, about the role that judges play, et cetera, you're gonna less, be less likely to think that there's, oh, there's just a political explanation for it. They're all corrupt or there's all some giant uh, a problem that uh, is, is eroding our democracy. Um, so it just stands to reason and, and indeed has been proven time and again through surveys that teaching civic education and engaging in public disc discourse does have real serious and major benefits for, for our country. So it's an important thing that we need to work on. I think that's a really interesting point that you made. Um, my last question for you before we uh, okay. hand it over to attendee Q&A, uh, you talked about amending Section 230 regarding the liability shield for social media platforms. Um, and I see that's been in the news uh, even in the past few days with uh, President Trump saying he'll veto the defense appropriations bill unless it has something in it to fix that statute from his viewpoint. Why wasn't some of this disinformation problem foreseen when the statute was adopted? And how did we end up so deep into this problem? Well, it wasn't foreseen at the time uh, when the this Section 230, and, and for those online viewers who are wondering about your reference to it, uh, the, the president said a day or two ago, and as recently as apparently this morning again, that he's threatening to uh, veto the um, uh, National Defense Authorization Act 
um, because it does not have a provision in it that would repeal this section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It has no connection to the defense bill. He's just using it as a sort of bargaining chip, so to speak. And a lot of members of Congress are unhappy with it. And who knows, it, if he does veto it, it could lead to the first override of his veto uh, because we've had an NDAA, the National Defense Auth uh, Authorization Act, for 59 years straight every year we've had it. So um, it's vital to our, to our country and our armed forces. Um, the president is using this as a bargaining chip. Why is he so concerned about it? Well, because it, as I said, the conservatives do feel that it, it has led to a situation in which, uh, in their view, uh, the, the liberal social media companies, as they view them, uh, are censoring conservative views. There's a lot of academic studies that show that's not the case, but nonetheless, that's still a firmly held belief in some quarters. So when the statute was enacted in 96, social media didn't exist. Uh, the internet was still very new. In fact, if you think about uh, technology generally in this area, you know, um, the iPhone is only what, uh, uh, I guess 13 years old, 14 years old. Facebook was started only 16 years ago in 2004. Um, YouTube started in 2005. So we forget how quickly this technological advances, has, uh, advances have just washed over us. And it's done so, so quickly, far more quickly than other technologies, which took, which took years to develop, that we haven't been able to set up the norms and standards and laws and industry self-regulation as well as um, governmental regulation to deal with this. So, so we have a problem because, although it wasn't anticipated at the time, this technology gives everybody a megaphone. And with everybody having a megaphone of, of seemingly equal weight, um, it's enabled the web to be a far more exciting place in some regards. Um, and it's also made it um, very different from the kind of uh, uh, platforms that, that, that do have liability, namely publishing, newspapers, media. Those, those platforms offer curated content from, from reporters. It's a very different system. And yet, um, and, and, the, and the, in part, that's because of the fear of liability, fear of libel suits, slander suits, et cetera. If we took away all, Section 230 in its entirety, I don't think it would produce a good outcome. And, and many people, I think, uh, agree with that position, that, that that's too strong um, a, uh, uh, a solution. It would probably lead to some, some far right wing voices being censored because precisely because people would be concerned about liability, um, it would probably lead to a far tamer, less innovative internet. And I'm not sure that's something we want. By the same token, we clearly don't want to have online hatred. We clearly don't want to have revenge porn, child porn, et cetera, all of which can hide out in darker portions of the, of the internet uh, uh, in, part, in part because of this liability shield. So we need to find a constructive compromise on one hand that allow sufficient innovation and sufficient uh, range of freedom of speech, while at the same time uh, regulating it in some way that some of the more pernicious aspects are cut back. And that's really the point of my comments earlier, which is that we need to find an appropriate balance in this area. But just because it's hard to do, and I know it's hard, doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Great, thank you for answering all my questions. Um, we'll shift now to attendee questions. We have quite a few here, so I'll get started with those. Uh, the first question uh, we have is, are there incentives that you envision for the private sector to combat disinformation? Sure, I think, I think at the end of the day, it's, uh, it, it's a benefit for uh, private 
for for uh, let's take the social media platforms for social media platforms to be seen as safe and, and appropriate uh, places. Um, many of them take steps, such as YouTube and others, to provide safe space for for minors to to view to view content, and that makes parents feel more comfortable about it, et cetera. Makes you feel better about use of the use of that site. So, so there are definitely benefits. More people are going to use YouTube, watch watch their ads, produce more money for Google, which owns YouTube, et cetera. Um, so there's steps that they can take to make this safe. Um, it is true that uh, on the other hand. Um, the more viral a piece of information is, the more the platform potentially benefits from, from it because more eyeballs are on it, so to speak, and that's the greater potential for more data to be collected or more ads to be run. So admittedly, there is an economic element to this, but I definitely feel that we can construct things in a way that will make it economically safe and attractive for social media platforms to, to, uh, to fend off disinformation. That, that's ultimately in their long-term interest. They don't want to be in a position where their, their platforms are so polluted that they start losing audience share. And we see that with some of the more extreme social media platforms that are sort of in the dark web that have very tiny audiences. Maybe they're more dramatic audiences, but, but it's really tiny. Would it be possible to hold elected officials in the same standards of conduct that the Office of Government Ethics establishes for public servants? Interesting question. Um, I know there are some efforts to hold candidates for for federal public office to, to higher standards, and some of them and some of them are obvious, as in the area, for example, of um, of, uh, of political campaign contributions, where, where we do that. Um, whether it's possible to do that in the areas of speech is a little more difficult just because, of course, of, of, of the First Amendment. Um, but, it, but it could be possible that um, uh, perhaps, uh, if not, not through a regulatory area, but through voluntary efforts, uh, we could have candidates who are a little more uh, uh, worried about um, the, the bad effects of disinformation. Um, whether the government should get involved in policing that in a political campaign is pretty tough just because I think we tend to err on, on wanting political speech to be as robust as possible. So curtailing that, I think, is, is a tough thing. But look, it's worth exploring. All these ideas are worth exploring. I think what we're going to have to do with the entire question of disinformation, as I said in my, in my earlier comments, is, um, is try things here and there. There's no one solution, but we'll have to try a bunch of different solutions, see what works. We should have tolerance for making a few mistakes. Maybe we'll go overboard in one area, maybe We'll, we'll, won't do something enough. But I think if we take some steps, perhaps the one you, the, the questioner just posed, um, perhaps we, we can have a real effect. The next question here, uh, the US intelligence community only rarely focuses on countering disinformation and deception. Excellence in these fields is not a professional requirement there. A recent study by a CIA veteran has revealed that we only pay attention to them when we happen to have a CIA director who is personally interested in the subject. How do we get the IC to reform itself in this regard? Well, I served uh, in the intelligence community for almost five years uh, and founded a, a, a wonderful place filled with really serious patriotic Americans who were genuinely trying to do the right thing. They're resource constrained. They can't focus on everything. So they focus on the more immediate and urgent threats, you know, North Korean missiles, for example, during my tenure there recently. Um, it is true that disinformation um, probably isn't listed right up there as the as the one of the top uh, 
of priorities. It's, it's not the most urgent threat. It doesn't produce damage on any one day. It has a sort of more pernicious insidious effect. So it's definitely true that it doesn't perhaps rank at the top priority, but it's also incorrect to say that it wasn't the focus of any attention because the intelligence community was aware of its, its, uh, its bad effects and tracks it and very much was on top of, uh, uh, belatedly, uh, was on top of what Russia did in um, 2016, so much so that in 2018, we took a really serious effort at stopping Russian disinformation. And I believe the, um, the director of the National Security Agency and, and other federal officials at 2018 said that those were the safest elections in terms of being free from foreign influence, precisely because our, our intelligence community took the threat of foreign disinformation seriously. Um, our intelligence committee is focused on foreign disinformation, not, not domestic disinformation. So that, that reveals a big gap. Um, but I think our intelligence committee will in the future, especially under the Biden administration, uh, uh, make this a, a higher priority. I think we, we have learned our lesson from 2016 and, 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 the, and the disinformation around the COVID pandemic. And I think you'll see a, a far more robust approach to disinformation. Uh, another attendee question, um, they say, I'd love to hear Mr. Gerstel's thoughts on how best the United States government could work to combat disinformation. Who should lead the effort? Should there be a broad public education campaign like other countries have done at either the federal and or state level? It's, uh, it's one of those questions that has a long answer and part of it was some of the comments I already made. I'd like, I guess I'd like to say a few things. One, um, uh, there's no one solution. Uh, we're going to have to try a whole bunch of different tools. And that's because the, the source of disinformation is not any one thing. It's not foreign. It's not just domestic. It's not just purely a function of technology. It's not just purely a function of politics or economic status. It's a whole, whole bunch of uh, sources for it. So therefore, there's going to be a whole bunch of tools that we have to use to deal with it. I mentioned several in my remarks, uh, uh, ranging from technological solutions to legal solutions, um, to uh, my, my particular favorite, which is increasing civic education. So it, you don't even have a receptive audience for it in the first place, because you'll have a more knowledgeable audience. Um, whether the United States government should go on an active disinformation, an active campaign against disinformation uh, is, a, is, a, is a something that I think people need to examine uh, more carefully. It, it could be viewed as propaganda. We have a natural resistance to that. And also there's a question of just how effective it really, really will be. But we could teach, we could teach digital literacy. We could teach how to avoid scams and frauds. We certainly did that with this most recent election with efforts made by the Department of Homeland Security as well as local election officials to tell people what's the truth, what are rumors to debunk uh, some rumors. So, so there, there's a wide range of steps we can take. Um, I, my particular uh, favorite um, is that we should set up within the federal government a national disinformation center to have one place where we could coordinate efforts across the federal government as well as integrate those with the private sector, which are so important. Uh, right now, we don't have any one place to do it. Uh, the intelligence community handles this a little bit, as we just discussed. The State Department has, a, has an important role to play. They have a global engagement center that has issued some very good reports in this area. The Commerce Department is involved. Uh, the FCC, because the Federal Communications Commission obviously uh, is involved. So there's a wide range of agencies. It's not coordinated by any one person. And it's ridiculous to think that the president himself or herself at any time is gonna be directly coordinating that. So we need to have uh, an integrated effort. And I think that'll make a big difference.
Next question, while public-private engagement for cybersecurity exists in some form, is it time to pursue a holistic public-private partnership as a backbone for national security framework that can account for a multitude of technology challenges alongside information dissemination and standards? Sure, as I said, um, that questioner probably didn't have the benefit of my prior answer, but I'd sort of repeat my prior answer a little bit and say, that absolutely right. Uh, that a public-private partnership is is going to be crucial uh, to uh, to uh, fending off disinformation. The the federal government, as I said, can't do it alone. The private sector can't do it alone. Um, it's going to require a partnership. The government has insights into the nature of foreign disinformation. The government has the ability to to regulate. The private sector is the owner of the technology and has the ability to uh, to adjust it and deal with users and to deal with content. Um, so it's got it's got to be both. And, and we, we saw some of this in, um, again, uh, to refer to the uh, 2018 elections where uh, it was reported that the FBI and the intelligence community and the Department of Homeland Security and our government worked in a holistic way with the social media platforms to take down uh, malicious foreign content. And they, they seemed to be quite successful in that. Uh, they weren't, they hadn't done that in 2016. Uh, we got caught flat-footed, frankly. Um, but but where, um, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and others are open to working with the FBI, and they are, by the way, I want to be very clear on that. Um, and they now have established channels of communication between the FBI and the social media uh, platforms and the Department of Homeland Security. I think real progress can be made in a public-private partnership. The next question here, as far as uh, digital literacy, do you know of any other countries who have fine examples of programs for digital literacy provided for their citizens that we may borrow from or emulate? There, there are. Uh, there are some academic studies uh, about this. I'm not, I don't have them at my fingertips, but um, my sense is that the, um, the Scandinavian countries have been particularly good at this. Uh, some of the countries that are most threatened by Russia uh, uh, and the disinformation and cyber security uh, incidents uh, fomented by Russia have some of the strongest digital literacy uh, campaigns with, with their populations being very, very knowledgeable about digital security and cybersecurity. Estonia comes to mind as perhaps uh, the leader in that regard, but also Latvia and other, and other Baltic Sea countries. As I said, the Scandinavian countries have made big efforts in this area. Singapore, halfway around the world, also has a has a, a steps to uh, to encourage civic education and, and digital literacy. So, so there are some other democracies that we can look at that have, have made steps and have, have taken steps in this area. Again, they don't all have the same government model, and so it's not going to be exactly translatable to our our model here. Um, but but there there are good lessons we can learn, and we need to take the best of each of them. And as I said, it's going to be a trial and error process. There's no one thing that we're going to adopt that's going to solve this. But but there are steps we can take. And just because it's complex, as I said before, doesn't mean we shouldn't start somewhere. How can citizens discern when disinformation and propaganda is bleeding into our news media? What agency of the US government is assigned the task of parsing disinformation in the media? Well, fortunately, none are. And I think that's the way we want it. Um, we simply do not want, and it's been a founding principle of this country, um, government to decide what we see and hear. And um, the First Amendment um, is an important element of that. Uh, it's not the only embodiment of that free speech principle. 
It is true that the First Amendment isn't absolute. There are lots of exceptions to free speech uh, that, that the Supreme Court over the 200 odd years uh, has, has, that has been dealing with First Amendment cases has looked at. For, I mean, it's addition to the, in addition to the one that every school kid knows, which is that you can't yell fire in a crowded uh, theater. Um, but there are all sorts of uh, uh, restrictions we put on, on free speech having to do with advertising, for example. You can't advertise false claims about drugs. You can't advertise cigarettes and tobacco products in certain places. Um, there are limits on, on what you can say in the context of federal, federal election campaign contributions and how you can use your money for, for federal candidates. So there are areas where we do police speech, um, but it's very limited, it's very narrow. And the one area where I don't think we want to go into is, is an area where the, uh, someone in the federal government decides what news we want to hear and what news is appropriate or even flagging the news or identifying the news. I think that's gotta be a private sector enterprise. The private sector is perfectly free to be robust and, and muscular in this regard. They don't have to worry about the First Amendment. It doesn't apply to them. They may or may not, depending upon the Section 230 issue, have to worry about legal liability. But again, the nature of liability is it's supposed to contain behavior into, uh, into proper channels and reasonable channels. So I have every confidence that our media uh, in general overall and our American system is able to discern truth from fiction. Um, there are parts where it gets blurry and messy, but by and large, that's the nature of it. Democracy is a little messy. We have time for a few more questions okay. here. Um, as a lawyer, do you see there is a constitutional way to revise Section 230? Sure, I think, I think we can um, uh, have a lot of room in terms of my, uh, amending Section 230. It, it, is, it doesn't really directly fall into a constitutional area. Um, the, the liability shield it imposes is one on, um, or, uh, is one on private sector. And I don't, I, don't, I don't think anyone would view that as, uh, as rising to a constitutional challenge. It's not a law that really affects speech in that way as, as the, as the, as the um, Supreme Court has interpreted. So I think we do have a lot of constitutional maneuvering room to change section 230. Uh, we could probably repeal it in the first place. Again, I don't think that's a particularly good idea. Um, uh, there doesn't seem to be any move to tighten it up. Uh, I think we have to be careful how we amend, how we amend it. Um, right now we've had only, I, I may be mistaken, I believe we've had only one serious significant amendment to it since it was adopted. And that was an amendment just a few years ago to remove the liability shield where um, uh, an internet provider um, knowingly is engaged in sex traffic or the promotion of uh, prostitution or or um, uh, encouraging uh, sex with, uh, with, with minors. Um, so in that one sort of very specific area, it has to be knowing and there has to be some element of, of, of knowing what you're doing, not just accidentally. Um, social media platforms can be liable for, for promoting or uh, in this sexual area improperly. Um, so the question is, are we going to amend section 230 and repeat that kind of sort of rifle shot approach, which is we'll take one particular area and say, the liability shield doesn't apply here, it doesn't apply there, it doesn't apply there, it applies elsewhere. The problem with that is you'll then very quickly run into some incongruities where this is okay, but something very similar isn't. Where do we draw the line and why is that rational, et cetera? So I personally am not in favor of carving out specific little exceptions to section 230. I think what we need is much more of a, of a, of a general reasonableness standard or a broader standard 
And you know, we have that elsewhere in the world. We like the, our entire negligence standard across the board, applying to all negligence acts, is just a reasonableness standard. So we're perfectly capable as a society and as a business of dealing with a statute um, that has has a, a broad standard in it that will have to be applied to each particular fact pattern. And there, and I don't think there's going to be a constitutional problem with that at all. Great, we're running out of time here, but I have one last question to ask you. Um, would you consider the bias about the way information is absorbed certified slash certified merely based on origin sources and issue to account for? If standards for information releases can be ascertained, the assumption is that they would be consistent across the board. Can national security be pursued as a political outcome, making it government neutral? A little bit of a complicated question. I, I'm not totally sure I understand it, but it has to do with, I believe, with uh, the sources of information, sort of certifying them, if I'm getting it right. Yes. Um, uh, look, we have lots of private sector entities that, that do that kind of thing already. Um, we have, uh, um, in, in, the, in the UK, to take an example, uh, there's an organization called NewsGuard that that um, is is a coalition that uh, looks together looks in a joint way uh, at at information available online and and labels websites as being trustworthy or not, um, and it has uh, with it has a panel of people on it who are respected and and of a diversity of opinions. There's full disclosure as to what they're doing. Um, could we do something like that in the United States? Yeah, sure. And we, we do very various versions of it. There are some websites that seek to um, uh, endorse the veracity or lack of veracity of some other websites. Um, there are other, there are other uh, websites that track disinformation. I mentioned the Hamilton 2.0 website, which does a fine job of that. Um, most of them explain why it is that they're making the decision. So it's not just a black box, which would be hard to feel that it's authentic and have its own level of veracity. So I think we can do something with more in a more robust and coherent way with the private sector, making an effort across the board um, to try to identify falsehoods. Again, we falsehoods are not illegal. Um, we're always going to have campaign speech that's a lot of puffery and in some places moves over beyond puffery into outright lying and dissembling. But that's the system we have. There's a cost to it, but our society has decided we want that cost. It's important for our, for our democracy to have a full range of opinions. So I don't see the government doing that and sort of certifying information. I think that's the wrong role. I think that's up to various units within our private sector. They will agree, they'll disagree. There'll be liberal versions of that and conservative versions of it. But I think at the end of the day, that's the outcome we want. That's all the time that we have. Thank you for okay. taking that rapid fire Q&A session. Um, <laughs> I appreciate your time. It was a very informative uh, discussion. Um, I would like also like to thank all of you uh, who joined us on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Mr. Gerstel. Thank you. It. Thank you. Have a great evening, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks.